Chabad really believes that no Jew is better than another. The way we're trained is when you encounter a fellow Jew, you're encountering someone that has something to teach you. Welcome to the Holy Sparks podcast. Our mission is to illuminate the brightest lights in the Jewish world and beyond so that we elevate the Holy Sparks within us and make the world around us a better place. I'm your host, Saul Kay. If you're looking for inspiration, edutainment, or simply want to discover people doing amazing things in and around the Jewish world, you're in the right place. Also want to give a big thank you to our sponsor, JLTV, Jewish Life Television Network. JLTV is a 24-7 cable and satellite television network delivering news, history, and entertainment. JLTV brings together the greatest voices from around the country, across the world, and from the Holy Land. Go to jltv.tv for stories that inspire. Welcome to the Holy Sparks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I am super honored and excited to bring you this very special interview. And without further ado, let me go ahead and edify the man properly. Rabbi Yosef Marcus is the co-founder of Chabad NP and co-director of the Lent Chabad Center. He's the author of several books of Torah literature, including commentaries on the Psalms, the Scroll of Esther, the Passover Haggadah, Ethics of Our Fathers, Perkei Avot, and currently at work on a new commentary on Eshet Chayel, Woman of Valor. His articles have appeared on AskMoses.com and Chabad.com. He lives in San Mateo, California with his wife, Esti Marcus, director of the acclaimed High Preschool and their six children, and he can be reached at rabbi at chabadnp.com. And I'm honored to call him my rabbi and my friend. Rabbi Yossi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Saul. It's an honor and a pleasure. So happy to have some time with you this afternoon. And I really want this interview to be uh, an introduction to some people that have never had a conversation with a Chabad rabbi before, even though we've talked a few times. Let's talk about your growing up and your youth and a little bit of your Jewish education from a young age. Awesome. So I grew up in Miami Beach, Florida, till I was nine years old, and then moved to Long Beach, California, and grew up there. My parents still live in Long Beach. And growing up, Jewish education, I went to a cheder. So cheder is like not just a Jewish day school. It's Yiddish. I learned you learned to read the, the you know how the teacher taught us to translate into Yiddish. Hashem hat Not Hashem said that the one above hat gezokt. So we learned Yiddish in cheder. We didn't have any um, secular studies till I was in fifth grade. We moved to California. I went to a school in Los Angeles on La Brea Avenue. And there, there was there was no option to have only Jewish studies. So for half a day, we, we learned English and other secular subjects. And uh, so my Jewish education was pretty high level. And I'm very grateful for that. Baruch Hashem. What else? Well, talk to me after primary school was what I would call, you know, K through eight. Uh, was there a Jewish high school that you went to in Los Angeles? Yeah. So I went to a, it's called, it's still called the yeshiva. It's not called the high school, mm-hmm. but it's for the age of high school in Los Angeles. It was uh, yeshiva or El Chanan Chabad, so Chabad yeshiva. 
And that was a great experience. I really got into it when I was a teenager. I was very excited about Torah and Hasidus and Chabad and all of that as a, as a teenager. And was there the expectation on you personally or generally to become a rabbi? Is that the, the assumed outcome of that? Uh, not necessarily. So I come from a family of 10, 10, uh, 10 siblings. So I've got five brothers and four sisters. I got that right. And I would say about half of us are in the rabbinate. Or in the case of, uh, of the girls, uh, Rebbitsons. So it's not necessarily the expected outcome, but I think in my mind, that was what I always thought would, would happen. You know, you have a very musical family, and we can talk a little bit about that. Maybe talk a little bit about your brothers that are very into music, and also one of your uncles is quite a famous musician. And there may be more that I don't know about. Did you ever consider that as a vocation for yourself with all the talent that you have? Uh, thank you very much. Yes, my uncle Avram Fried, one of the most famous Hasidic singers for the past 40 years. I grew up on his music. We listened to his first record, came out when I was a kid, uh, No Jew Will Be Left Behind. And my brothers got into the music world with the Eighth Day Band around uh, 1993-ish, and they've doing great. And I've had the honor of doing a solo on one of their albums. No, I never thought about myself going into it, but I do love to sing and I love doing leading the prayers at the shul and um, love to sing. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I have to say, I've been to Rabbi Yossi Shul many times and I've heard him lead many times and I've heard many Rabbam lead many times and many cantors lead many times. I would say thousands of times is a pretty safe estimate. Rabbi Yossi is a, an amazingly good singer, very in tune very good at Nusach, very good at improvisation. And I'm not just saying that, ladies and gentlemen, you haven't heard me deal out many compliments on this podcast like that, but certainly uh, that's why I asked you, because really, you, you know, you could have been a cantor. No, I'm just teasing. I mean, you really have the the, the talent and certainly the, the upbringing and the, the container to, to go down that path, but you never really considered it. You just thought, you know what, the rabbinates for me and, and that's that. Yeah. Well, thank you, Saul. I appreciate that. I'm definitely going to be forwarding this podcast to my mother now with that compliment. <laughs> Please do. And to your brothers, too. Talk a little bit about Eighth Day. What, you know, your, is it your brother, Bensi? Eighth Day is great. They're great. So it's Bensi and Shmuley, two of uh, younger brothers of mine. And my brother Shmuley is a very talented uh, poet, writer, musician. So he writes all the songs and the and the words. Bensi writes some of it. Bensi's the... Uh, the producer and the arranger of the music and together they're just a great team and they most of their songs are in English and they're conveying ideas of Hasidus, uh, deep, sometimes very deep ideas in these very catchy and uh, poetic tunes. Absolutely there. Yeah, they're a very good band as well and really good production too, which I love and that's something I'm personally very passionate about is raising the level of Jewish music production, you know, and certainly your uncle was a pioneer in that realm as well. I want to explore the life of a Chabad rabbi as a shaliach of the Rebbe, because I think many of the people listening to this have may, maybe not, they're not familiar with the process, right? So let's talk about the process of, so you go to yeshiva, you get your smicha. A lot of the guests that I've had on this podcast have gone to a, a yeshiva or a, um, a rabbinical school for four or five years, and then they get a job, right? So talk about how is it different in your world and, and what we can learn from that? 
Well, so the concept of a shliach, I mean, we grew up, our family grew up in Miami. My parents were shluchim. They were emissaries of Chabad, of the Rebbe, to Miami Beach. My father grew up there, and so it kind of made sense that he came back there. And they were teachers. So they were teachers in the local Jewish Chabad, Jewish day school. And that was their shlichut. That was their uh, contribution to the Jewish people, their mission to the Jewish people, being elementary school teachers. And they continued in that job. In fact, my mother is still doing it, uh, although she's teaching high school now. My father is retired, and he does kind of one-on-one studies now from the comfort of his living room. But for, I don't know how many years, decades and decades, they were in the classroom, and that was their shlichut. That was their mission. And growing up, we always had guests coming into the home. My parents were incredibly hospitable people traveling through. We had people who who were unhoused that would, would spend some time at our house or come for a meal and so forth. It was always the older gentleman, Mr. Bing. I remember him. He lived near the bay. And he would come on Friday nights and we'd have to, you know, he had a, a song, a song, song that he composed for Shabbat and we'd have to hold in our laughter because it was quite amusing to us as children. So we grew up in a house that was on a mission to, to, give, to give to the Jewish people. So it's kind of in us, ingrained in us. And I would say that my siblings, who are not in the official capacity of rabbis and so forth, they do this just by nature, you know, the Jews that they bump into and work, talking about our eighth day friends, or my other bro- brother, Ellie Marcus, who is a fantastic, more traditional Hasidic singer. Whenever they bump into other musicians who may not be religious Jews, they're they're wrapping them up with the film and they're doing the Chabad thing and and um, inviting them to their house for, for holidays, giving them matzah for Pesach. So it's in our in our upbringing to, to do that. And to your question, what happens with uh, with the Chabad Shulchim is you basically, you in our case, I'll, I'll say, we found a place. We were living in L.A., and we, we thought, you know, L.A. has got so many Chabad rabbis. Do they really need another one? So we looked, raised our eyes to the north, and saw there was no Chabad between Palo Alto and San Francisco at the time. We said... There's got to be a Chabad here. There's a bunch of synagogues. There's JCC. There's got to be a Chabad. And so we, we established, my wife and I established the Chabad here in San Mateo, 2001. Okay. So I want to pause there for a minute. So that's a very different model. And maybe you can unpack this a little bit. I'm actually not 100% clear on this as well. So you get sent out on shlichas. And like to be a shaliach of the Rebbe, this would be a good thing for you to really explain to people. What does that actually mean in, in your words? What does it mean? So going back, I would say to the 1920s, the Chabad Hasidic dynasty, there was the fifth Rebbe at the time, Rabbi Sholem Dover. He was sending rabbis from Russia where Chabad was based, to uh, Georgia, Gruzia, because the Jews there, you know, were, were, didn't have the, the education. And so there was already this, this idea of you can't just live in your own neighborhood and worry about yourself. You've got to look around the world and see where do Jews need some help with Jewish education, Jew, building Jewish community. And that continued with his son, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, who passed away in 1950, who sent rabbis to Australia, to uh, Morocco, and, you know, these are Ashkenazic Russian rabbis showing up in Morocco. Hey, we're here to help. And they did an incredible job. A lot of the 
um, Moroccan Jews who ended up in Israel from Tunisia and ended up in Israel, they'll talk about how when they became prominent Sephardic rabbis in Israel, they'll talk about how in their youth, they got their education at a Chabad school in Morocco, in Tunisia. So this really picked up with the seventh Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel, known as the Rebbe, where he just was sending, he told everybody, all of anyone who would listen, I don't want you here in Crown Heights listening to my speeches. Go. Go. He sent to Milan and he sent to uh, everywhere, all over the whole world. And at first, there was a lot more one-on-one -on -one with the Rebbe of where are you going and so forth. It was uncommon for the Rebbe to tell somebody, you, I want you in this city. He didn't operate that way. He would tell people, people who wanted to join, join the uh, force, he would say, why don't you look into it? Bring me some suggestions, and I'll I'll let you know which one I think is best. He always wanted things to come from below, not this like go here, do this. Um, so by the time we were we're going out on shluchas, um, the Rebbe had already passed. It was two thousand and one. The Rebbe passed away in nineteen ninety four. So it was it was definitely from below. In that you know we looked into it, we found the spot where Chabad wasn't wasn't present. And even though the Rebbe has already passed, we view ourselves as doing the Rebbe's mission, which is dedicate your life to serve the Jewish people in a particular place. And something very interesting about Chabad Shluchim is that they come to a place, it's not a, it's not a career move. Okay, I'm going to be here for a couple of years, and then I'll move up to a larger congregation and so forth. Not that that's a bad model. You come to the place, and there's almost a spiritual, there's an assumption of a spiritual connection of you to that place and a responsibility to that place. And so you stay there forever till Mashiach comes. Okay, we're gonna to get to Mashiach in a minute, but okay, so this is- Can't wait for Mashiach. Yeah, I know, well, maybe, it's, maybe we're, we're here, okay. And the interview's over, okay. Yeah. <laughs> this is a different model, right? For most people that are unfamiliar with this model. So you you feel some sort of spiritual calling or a Chabad Shaliach feels a spiritual calling to a certain place in the world. And they decide they're moving in, that's it. It's permanent. Okay. Now, is there, do they get funded for a year from like Lubavitch headquarters or they just go and figure it out? Talk a little bit about that as you feel comfortable because I think it's fascinating to understand that. Sure. So the way it works now, I mean, things may have been different in the past, but the way it works now, the only funding that comes for head, from headquarters for new Chabad centers is for Chabad on campus. So if you open up a Chabad on a campus, there's like, I think it's three years of, of funding that the headquarters will provide. That's mm -hmm. the generosity of George Rohr, uh, one of the great philanthropists, supporters of Chabad. Um, otherwise, and there, there could be other exceptions. You know, if there's a Chabad opening up in some remote place that it'd be very hard to fundraise from that place, there will be funding. Now, the way that the Rebbe set up the Chabad network is that every country has its own head shaliach, the top guy, he's in charge. And in, every, in America, the way it works, every state has its own top shaliach, he's in charge. And uh, so if you want to open a center in California and call it Chabad, you've got to talk to Rabbi Kunin in Los Angeles and Westwood on Gailey Avenue across from UCLA. He's got to give this the stempel, stamp of approval. Mm -hmm. And in some, in some cases, the, the head shaliach will provide funding to open a new center. What often happens is, if it's not a campus, it's not a remote location, the couple that is going out and opening this new center 
will fundraise from their family, from their friends. They'll do it. They'll do a matching campaign and raise maybe a salary for one year. Then they just jump in, as we did. We did not have any funding when we came here. Habato, California, did provide us with a leased car that they kept paying the lease on for I think a year and a half or so, mm-hmm. and health insurance for a year and a half around. And we came with our own savings. We had two major sponsors at the beginning, which was MasterCard and Visa. (laughs) I love it. Uh, And so basically you, I don't know if this is the, that's the fair word to use, bootstrapping the, the budget by doing programs. And, you know, in your case, you guys started a preschool and, uh, you know, this is what I find fascinating and so inspiring about, you know, all the shluchim that I've met is they just pick a spot. It could be, you know, Bakersfield, Kathmandu. I mean, my first exposure to Chabad was uh, Rabbi Zirkin in Fresno. He just picked that spot and that's it. He just committed. And there is there is a power in commitment, of course, right? And in, in people feeling that. And I remember speaking to another Chabad rabbi, Gedalia Potash in, in San Francisco, who actually married us, who said he just made 200 phone calls a week when he got there to connect to Jewish people and to see how he could help. And it's this incredible model to me. It's really fascinating to me from so many different levels. And it seems to work out. I mean, I only know of a few Chabad rabbis that have moved from their original location and I've met hundreds and hundreds. So it somehow works out and it's with the generosity of the community. Anything else you want to say about that, about that model and just to kind of explain it more to people, how it works or. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's many models that could work and, you know, it's, it's not to say that, you know, this is the best model or anything like that, but what's unique about it is, is that you're really, you're really as a person. So, enmeshed with this project right because you've got to do the fundraising for it the other model is you get the money and you're all you're funded and maybe there's some advantage to that you don't have to worry about the fundraising you can just do the programs and so on and so forth but i think that the advantage of having to do the fundraising really connects you very much with the community because you've got to be doing something that the community (laughs) appreciates otherwise you won't get funded so that that ties you to the community as opposed to kind of being superimposed of, you know, you got all this money coming from somewhere else and you come in with that. And, you know, the, the most rabbis, I would say, don't have to fundraise. They get a salary. Chabad rabbis do have to fundraise. And that is a hard thing to do. It's not easy. It's probably the most difficult thing that the Chabad rabbis need to do. But... I think that the process of having to go through that really changes who you are as a person and makes you a different person. And I think it has a lot to do with the success of Chabad is that the rabbis are doing the fundraising. Absolutely. And do you, is there any training that you get in yeshiva for how to run a Chabad house, how to create programming, how to do fundraising, you know, any of that, or is it just on the job, you figure it out? Now there is. When, when, uh, when we started out, there wasn't as much. Now there's a lot of excellent training for the, for the newbies. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay. So uh, explain to people where the name Chabad comes from. I know this is a little bit of an esoteric topic, but in a you know, moderately condensed way, uh, where's that come from and what does it mean? Chabad is an acronym for three Hebrew words, Chochmah, Bina, Da'at, wisdom, understanding, knowledge. And it goes back to the origin of the Chabad movement, which is 
the third generation of Hasidism. So we're going back to like the late 1700s and Hasidism was pretty new. And the first Chabad Rebbe established his path as one of doing a lot of study and intellectual understanding of um, the mystical and philosophical concepts of Judaism about God, about the soul, about the Torah, as opposed to some in the Hasidic movement that were focused more on emotion, on not, not getting too deeply enmeshed in the, uh, the intellectual side of it, viewing that almost as a negative and taking away from the emotion. They were focusing on joy and, and faith and connecting to the tzaddik. Dalta Rebbe's approach, the first Chabad Rebbe, his approach was Chabad, Chochma Binadas. You need to you need to learn it, you need to think about it, you need to meditate upon it, and that's going to influence the emotion, and you're going to have real lasting emotions of love for God, of reverence for God, as opposed to like the twig that lights up very quickly, but then goes out very quickly. So he's the, that's the Chabad. You know, Chabad today is, is associated with a dancing rabbi on the telethon or, you know, rapping to villain. But in the origin, Chabad is focused on intellectual pursuit and understanding of the divine. It's the Chacham Balev, the mind controlling the heart in, in that sense. Would you agree with that? Okay, so t when you say third generation, I'm guessing that you mean the Balsham Tov would be the first generation, and then are we talking the Magad of Mezrich? Yeah. Is that what you're meaning? Okay, maybe explain that to people in case they're not familiar with that lineage. Sure, so the founder of Hasidism is the Balsham Tov, Rabbi Yisrael Balsham Tov. He had a student named the Magid of Mizrich, who was his successor, that all the Hasidim of the time accepted. This is, he was his successor. And then the Magid's students branched off into these different schools of, of branches of Hasidic thought. And the Alter Rabbi, first Chabad Rabbi, Rabbi Shneur Zalman of Liti, author of the Tanya and Shulchan Aruch, he was a student of the Magid and went, you know, established his path. He was he was the Hasidism of of, uh, of White Russia. Got it. Okay, beautiful. So, I want to talk about the Baal Shem Tov in just a moment as it connects to Mashiach. But uh, before I get there, a lot of people think that the people that are going to Chabad services and events are all Orthodox Shomer Shabbat, and that it's maybe not an open place for people that are not that. To experience. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so that's a great question. Interestingly, Chabad attracts a very wide variety of people from people who are super orthodox and religiously observant to people who are, I would say, even intermarried. You know, they may be married to a non-Jew, but they come to Chabad and they feel very comfortable there. It's kind of ironic because, you know, why would you go to the most orthodox the rabbi's got a beard. You know, beards are now in style with the hipsters, thank God. For a while, we were the wackos, you know, what, what's, you can't afford a shaver and so forth. So, you know, it seemed that somebody who was, you know, not that religiously observant would not feel comfortable in a place where the kashrut is super duper orthodox and there's a mechisa down the middle and the men and the women sit separately and all that. But yet we find that a lot, a lot of Jews from across the spectrum feel very comfortable at Chabad. And I think the reason is because Chabad really believes that no Jew is better than another. That's like, it's not just a slogan or a, a talking point. It's very real. And it was modeled by the Rebbe himself. It's very much in the teachings. It's something you grow up with. 
So it's not like something you need to overcome. Oh, I, I can't be condescending. I got to be sure that I'm, you know, being humble and all that. It's not even like a effort that mm. you need to do. It's it's really, it's the obvious thing. Just because of the upbringing, because of the teachings, because of the, the way your, your parents modeled it, the way the Rebbe modeled it. It's like, you need to be religiously observant. Everybody's got to be religiously observant, every Jew, of course. But if somebody isn't, they're no less of a Jew than you are in any way. And so, in fact, you, every Jew has their unique quality, their unique spiritual superiority over any other Jew. And so the way we're trained is when you encounter a fellow Jew, you're encountering someone that has something to teach you, has something that is greater than you in some way. Of course, you have what's greater than other people as well. You need to take pride in that. But you're encountering people and you're thinking, wow, I mean, you're, it's not conscious, it's all subconscious. Here's a great, amazing person that I'm so happy to, to have at Shul. Mm, I love it. It really reminds me of many things you just said from directly from uh, Pirke Avo, you know, love, loving your fellow Jew. And also one of the things that I've experienced and in, encountered in many different Chabad communities is really like welcoming guests, like it's an open door policy. And this is something that Chabad does amazingly well. You feel welcome, right? They invite you over for meals and events and you really feel welcome and ironically that's not the case with every shul that i've been to and of course maybe there are some chabad shuls where that's not the case but i have not experienced that and that's to me is is such a bridge builder and i, I think that's why people feel comfortable besides what you just said which is the underlying subconscious you know uh, reason uh, but really that feeling of being welcomed is yeah, anything you want to say about that? That was just my experience. Sure, sure. And I will say that I think that this attitude of Jewish unity, I think that that the Chabad has 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 influenced the the broader Jewish world in that direction. I mean, there's been talking from the you know, reform and conservative leaders of you know how do we do it more like Chabad, and they're literally teaching their their uh, their rabbinical students. You got to look at the Chabad model. Look at like you were saying about the hospitality, how they're there for people in difficult times. And but this whole attitude of of acceptance, of non judgment. Interestingly and ironically, Chabad became the model. So you're seeing that I mentioned the former conservative, but also other Orthodox Jews. I grew up in a the Orthodox world. Mentioned earlier, the school I went to was not a Chabad school. The kids there were, were Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox, but not Chabad. And there I saw so clearly the difference between my upbringing and their upbringing. My attitude towards Jews who weren't religious and their attitude was, was couldn't be further apart. But what I see today is that the non-Chabad Orthodox world is getting a lot closer and speaking the same language that, you know, they even, I hate to say it, but they they laughed at Chabad for uh, forty years ago and thirty years ago, and you know Chabad were these weird weird guys. They like friendly with everybody and they accept everybody. It was seen as something weird or even dangerous for, for the Satmar, for example. They thought Chabad was super dangerous and they were at war with us. Dangerous? How? How is it dangerous? Well, dangerous. So from the Satmar perspective, mm -hmm. and my great grandfather who was not Satmar, but he was a Hasidic. Jew, not Chabad, but he kind of gravitated to the Satmar worldview. 
he told me that you know engaging with people who are not religious is dangerous because it could impact you and you might become less religious and even worse you might abandon the the observance altogether so you just need to that's I me mean, like that's the more insular groups which mm -hmm. you have till today of fear of of uh, people who are not following the straight and narrow because that could impact you it could impact your children and it's very dangerous mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you believe the opposite yeah chabad approach was you know these are your brothers these are your sisters Never like run away from your 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 own family because dangerous. You go you don't help them out. Absolutely, I love it. Okay, so talk a little bit about the Rebbe. I know you mentioned him earlier, and specifically, what impact do you feel he has had on Judaism and contemporary Jewish life? Wow, that's a big, huge topic. The Rebbe um, was born in Ukraine. And in 1902, and became the his father was a, was a incredible rabbi in what's now Dnepr 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 Petrovsk. He was a fighter. He fought against the, the communists, boldly teaching about Judaism, and uh, eventually was arrested by the Soviets. They sent him into exile. Unfortunately, he passed away in exile in Uzbekistan, Almaty, where he's buried. So the rabbi grew up in a home of misirut nefesh, as it's called of self-sacrifice, of giving yourself, putting yourself on the side and, and, and serving God, serving the Jewish people, even to your own detriment, as happened to his father. His mother, as well, together with her father, they were a house of hospitality. There was refugees who were coming in from Poland. At some point, they stayed and in, in, they were brought into the Rebbe's home. There were people who were sick with typhus. They were welcome. The Rebbe visited them. The Rebbe got sick from them, and so on and so forth. So he grew up in this home of Self-sacrifice for Judaism and the Jewish community, mm. hospitality, and caring for one's fellow Jew. And the Rebbe married uh, the daughter of the Rebbe at the time, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, and he became the next Rebbe in 1950, reluctantly. And he was just, he was an incredible Torah scholar. He was like one in the generation of, of his Torah scholarship. He was an expert in every field of, of Torah. So you've got great experts in Talmud, but they may not know much about Kabbalah, or they know a little bit about Kabbalah. You have experts in Kabbalah, but they're not great halachas. The Rebbe was expert in, in every field. It's just a brilliant mind. And, and uh, the way he's described from young age by his contemporaries was he was always had a book. He was always in a book of Torah, studying studying Torah. And so his mind was filled with, with Torah and Hasidus, and the traditions of Chabad. And so he approached everything from that worldview. And so, you know, the idea that one mitzvah, right, you get a person to put on to fill on that, that has infinite value. Mm -hmm. The whole idea of the, of the mitzvah campaign, which is now the Tefillin campaign, which is now a big deal in Israel right now, that came from deep study and understanding of Kabbalah, of Hasidus, of the value of one mitzvah, the value of every Jew, the value of, 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 of any particular moment, the infinite value. Of, of people, of actions, and of and of a moment. So I think that was something that the Rebbe emphasized. In other words, I just heard a great story today that is perfect for this. So the story is like this. There was a rabbi in Israel named Rabbi Hefer, who was a big Chabad macher in Kfar Chabad. And he was working on building a building for the girls' school called Beis Rivka. And he was working on it for a long time. He was really dedicated to it. And he came 
to the Rebbe for a meeting to try to get this thing done. And he brought the, the blueprints for the building, um, the digim, and he puts it down on the Rebbe's desk for his, you know, his private meeting, the Chidut. The Rebbe took the, 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 uh, the papers and he moved them to the side. And he said, we got to talk about something else. There's a girl named Narit who apparently left the school and she's not coming back. We need to talk about that. Then we talk about the building. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, yeah, of course. Well, he explained why she left and this and that. It was a long story, but they went back to Israel. He said, well, as soon as we got back to Israel, got together a group of the, of the staff in the school, and they went to visit her in Tel Aviv. They tracked her down. They went to visit her, and they said, we want you to come back to the school. What happened? Da, da, da. We'll take care of all the things. She came back to the school. It turned out, a long story short, that she was basically planning to abandon the whole religious observance. She was done with this school, done with the next school that she had gone to. And because they brought her back, she got back into it. And the way we know the story is because recently there was a, a l'chaim, a, 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 a engagement party. And the young man, who was a very Chabad, Hasidic Jew, gets up and he told the story. And he said, that girl is my mother. And she's here. So the Rebbe's view of one person is not the building, it's not the Jewish world, it's not the Jewish nation. Yes, of course, the Jewish nation is very important. But the individual Jew, that was, I think, one of the Rebbe's greatest contributions. Because if you're worried about the individual Jew, the Jewish nation is going to be okay. I love it. Now, one thing that a lot of people don't know, and correct me if I'm wrong, didn't the Rebbe go to the University of Sorbonne in France for a time period? Rebbe went to Sorbonne. He also went to university in Berlin for a time until it got a little too dicey in Berlin. He went to Paris. Then he left France when it got the Germans brought up over there. That's very un unusual. I mean, from my understanding of, you know, certainly the Chabad journey on, hey, let's go to a secular university, right? How do you think that affected his view of the world and his encountering people that are, you know, less religious or secular or non-Jewish? I'm not really sure. I know that the Rebbe's encounter with Nazism in Berlin had a strong impact. Obviously, he lost his uh, brother-in-law and sister in in the, in the Holocaust, and other other relatives. His own brother was was killed by the Nazis. So he had a strong view about how science and philosophy and human human based knowledge can devolve into absolute atrocity. And he took that one one of the, the lessons that he took from from that experience. As far as the going to university, he became a um, electric engineer. That was his that was his, uh, his field of expertise. And when he came to America, he was he felt that he was giving back to the U.S. for saving his life, accepting him in, in the 1941, saved mm -hmm. Nazis in, in France. And he worked at the Brooklyn Naval Yard and checking over the uh, electrical, make sure everything on the, the ships were okay. The impact, I think the, the Rebbe felt very confident in the world of science, and he he um, he talked to people in their fields with an incredible level of expertise with the latest studies. He was always very up to things in science and in in medicine. The, you, you you watch the videos of people who had conversations with him, and they'd say, "Well, I, I mean, I'm talking to this rabbi, and not only he knows about this general subject, he knows about my field, and and is able to talk about the latest research in it." The Rebbe was very 
uh, optimistic. That was a Rebbe's bias, positivity bias. Great mm-hmm. book uh, that my colleague will remember, Commonson wrote. But the positivity bias. So, for example, when it came to people with brain injuries or with with uh, autism and 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 Down syndrome, the Rebbe was very optimistic that they can do better than what the average person thinks. And he and he would find these doctors and psychologists and scientists that believed that through science, through medicine, through psychology, you can make things much better. And he would direct people when people consulted with him about, they would say, you know, speak to this doctor. You know, mm-hmm. the same thing with fertility. When the doctor said, oh, you'll never have a child, da, da, da. Speak to this doctor in Tel Aviv, non-religious doctor. Speak mm-hmm. to this guy here, this guy there. Um, there was a big fan of Frankel, Victor Frankel, as opposed to Freud, who was more pessimistic. The Rebbe loved uh, what Frankel was doing, which was talking about the soul and, and you know the goodness of, of the Indian and so forth. And there's a story about the Rebbe intera- interacting with him. So, I mean, it's hard for me to say exactly what the what the impact of the Rebbe's experience in, in university was, or to pontificate about it. But I know that when the Rebbe would, would be asked by people who were becoming more observant, and let's say they were in college, and they wanted to drop everything and just go to Jerusalem and study Torah all day, mm-hmm. the Rebbe would say, no, no, you're in that world already. You need to finish what you're doing. You need to get those three letters after your name, your PhD. And you need to remain a professor at the university in San Diego. Why? Because when Jews are going to come through your class, these young impressionable students who are being told there's no God and it's a joke and you can't be a Jew today. It's it's kind of old fashioned and so forth. They're going to see that their professor is an keeps Shabbat and keeps kosher. You're going to have a much more greater impact on on the world than sitting in Jerusalem and studying the Talmud. So. The answer to your question is, I don't know. <laughs> well, that was a very thorough answer. So this leads me to my next question, which was, what was the long-term vision of the Rebbe with regards to Chabad specifically and the Jewish people as a whole? Okay. The Rebbe's view was, first of all, that every Jew is responsible for another Jew. One of the famous lines of the Rebbe that he used to quote from his father-in-law is, when two Jews meet, it should create a benefit for a third Jew. And that's why he used to give the dollars and say, you know, here's a dollar, give this to charity and so forth. Um, The Rebbe's uh, worldview was that the world is, God created the world as his garden. And the world at its essence is a divine creation and should be a place of goodness and kindness. And the divine presence, originally, this was the Rebbe's very first speech that he gave, Kind of his, you know, mission statement was, quoting from the Midrash, that God's presence was initially in this physical world more than in the heavens with the angels. That this is the place where, in other words, there's not a, there was, there could be a, a religious worldview of, you know, we're just trying to separate ourselves from the world. We're trying to get to heaven and so on and so forth. The Rebbe's view, and this was, this is in Chabad, it's in, in Kabbalah, that this is the place, the world, the physical world is where you encounter the deepest essence of God, and that our job, particularly this gen- his generation and his Hasidim, our job is to bring the divine presence back to reveal God's presence in the world and throughout the world. And that's what we call basically the coming of Mashiach, where the world is seen in its in its best light, where God's presence is, is revealed, where there's no more war, where there's no more you know fighting among people. 
where God's presence and knowledge of God is flowing like the waters flowing in the sea. Okay, perfect tie into the next question. So there is a, a midrash that uh, the Baal Shem Tov had an ascent of his soul and he went to visit Mashiach and he said, when will you come? And he said, when your teachings are spread throughout the world. That's one version of that story. Now, you can go to Chabad.org or Kabbalah Online, the website you referenced, and find out everything about the Baal Shem Tov that we know at the moment. So in my mind, it's there. All of the, the, the teachings have been disseminated throughout the world. So what's missing, in your opinion? And then let's talk about, you briefly mentioned Mashiach, but talk more about that. So you're asking, so... So my question is, yeah, so 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 there's this story, right? This Midrash, Baal Shem Tov, went to visit Mashiach, saying, when are you coming? When your teachings are spread throughout the world. So from my perspective, they are, so, right? Yeah. You can so go online. Yeah, so, so are we missing something? Yeah. So first of all, there's two songs with that with that phrase. So one is a Chabad song. Very lively song. And there's a more recent song that goes like this. I'm forgetting the, the name of the guy who put that out, but it's, it's a great song. Mm-hmm. Um, so first thing we have to say, if you mention a phrase that has a song, I need to tell you the songs about it. That's number, uh, number two, the Rebbe basically said that he doesn't know why Mashiach is not here yet. Kept on trying to do various things. You know, Maybe it was this, maybe it was that. Maybe it's, uh, maybe we need to increase in joy. Maybe we need to uh, build more Chabad houses. Every, every, he would come up with a new, a new plan. It should be stated that the Rebbe always said we need to continue planning as if Mashiach is not coming. In other words, don't say, well, oh, we're not going to build a shul. Mashiach's coming tomorrow. We're not going to plan for Rosh Hashanah services because Mashiach is going to be here. He said, no, he, he required this, which is, I mean, this is, this, is, this is what Judaism requires of us. We believe that Mashiach can come any day and we're, we're ready for it and we're excited about it. And at the same time, we're planning for the future. It's, it's, that's a separate topic. But it's important to keep that in mind that it's not an escapist worldview of ah, Mashiach's coming and we're, we're right. So we still have to keep doing the work. Okay, carry on. Exactly. So, yeah, I would say yes. The 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 word is out. Yes, you can you can find it's accessible, but we still need to do more to get it to the people because just because it's on a website and that is a major step. And the rabbi talked about. When Hasidus was being taught on the ra- on the radio, the fact that it was available on the airwaves, that was a huge though. So the web is a hundred times, million times more. But still, you could argue that um, the more yafutsu we do, the closer we're getting. Okay, so translate that word in case people don't know what that yafutsu word is. The is the uh, dissemination of things of the Balshamta. The closer we're getting. Okay, so now talk a little bit about. So there's a lot of different concepts of what Mashiach is or who, or is it a time of peace or how will we know when Mashiach, the time or the person uh, or the era is here? How will we, how would we know? So the, the Rambam is uh, the only one who speaks about it in a halachic sense. So you have a lot of Midrash and you have a lot of the Talmud, but 
when you want to look at what does the halacha say about it, here's what he says. He says it was will come a time. It will be a, sorry, he, he uses the expression of, of a king mm-hmm. who will descend from King David, who will arise, who will be immersed in Torah study, and, and he will, will be working towards getting the, the Jewish world back to observance of mitzvahs and so on and so forth. And this person will bring the Jewish people back to the land of Israel, and he will build the Beit HaMikdash, in build the Beit Hamikdash, and in that time, there will be no more war, and no more hunger, and the only hunger that will and thirst will be for the words of Torah, the word of God. And so, how will we know we're in that time? Is when you turn on the news, and Russia is not attacking Ukraine, mm-hmm. and uh, one company is not trying to deceive another, mm-hmm. and people are free. In in, uh, in in various places in the world where they're currently not free. And uh, it is an interesting story that there was a, a rabbi. They came and they told him that Mashiach had arrived. And he went to the window, he put his head, head out and he sniffed the air and he said, no, false rumor. So he could smell it in the air, right? But the question they asked was, why did he have to put his head out the window? I mean, wouldn't the ear of Mashiach permeate his, his room? So the answer was that he gave was that in, they gave was in his room it, it always smelled like Mashiach. Huh. It was such a holy, beautiful rabbi that Mashiach was already there in his room. So he went to smell what's happening outside. So it's something that there's a there's a um, you know practical implications of it, but also spiritually there'll be a a sense in the world a, a, a an awareness of God that we don't currently have. Okay. Well, there is so much more we could say about that. We might need to do an entire episode just on Mashiach and talk about the different philosophies and ideas and reach out to Rabbi Yossi if you want to talk more about Mashiach. I'm sure he would love to love to connect with you about that. So what are some misconceptions about Chabad that you've encountered or feel maybe are out there that you'd like to speak to, to uh, make people feel more comfortable? misconceptions about Chabad. I would say the major one is we've touched on a little bit is that you're going to be judged that, you know, you're not as religious as the Chabad people. And so you're going to be looked at as a lesser Jew. So that I think is the most major misconception. I think I have an article out there somewhere called Rabbi, I'm a bad Jew. I'm a bad Jew. Had a nickel for every time someone said that to me, or I'm not Jewish enough. Yes. Yes. So I wrote an article about it after someone, I was talking to a guy in the park. He was like, Rabbi, I'm a bad Jew. I'm like, that flying over here, we're sitting in a park. I never met this guy before. He's already telling me I'm a bad Jew. So I think that for a lot of people, there's a fear that, you know, they're going to be judged. And, and that's the main, main misconception about Chabad. And also the idea that they're, that, you know, they're, they want, they're going to try to make me a, a, an observant religious Jew. And if I don't, go along with that plan of theirs, then they have no interest in me. Mm-hmm. That's not true of Chabad. If somebody told me I will never do another mitzvah, more mitzvah than I've already I'm already doing, that makes no difference. I still want them at Chabad for them. I want them there because our, our shul is not complete without that person. Mm-hmm. Just their presence, who they are, gives so much to the rest of the community. And it's not about, of course, I'm a rabbi. I'm trying to get people to study more Torah. I want them to do more mitzvahs. I believe that that is best for them. 
I believe that they will be happier. The more mitzvahs they do, the more Torah they study, they're going to be happier. But if you told me 100%, this person is not going to change anything. It doesn't make one iota of a difference of how I want to be their friend, have them at the show, have them as a guest at my home and so forth. I love it. And what's fascinating about that is, I'm sure you've experienced this over the last you know 20 years of being in the area, if you hang around the campfire long enough, you're going to get warm, right? My experience being around Chabad rabbis like yourself in different communities is there is a natural welling up inside of, at least this has happened to me, and I'm sure you've seen this in other people, of you, you want to do more, you want to learn more because you're around, for example, you, um, you know, you'll see that, that represents someone that is all the way in. They're 100% committed to this life, and that's inspiring. Right. And that's something that while that might not be a fit for everyone, they see you as as a, an example of of what's possible and that I feel it naturally connects to an aspirational nature inside of them or just a curiosity. I want to learn more. Does that, does that resonate with you? Well, thank you. You know, absolutely. I think that this is the idea of a shliach and to be a representative and uh, you know we're we're not we're not tzaddikim we're not perfect people, but particularly the fact that we are representing something, definitely I could see how that would be inspiring to people to see you know it's it's not for me I'm I'm not religious and I'm never going to be religious but I get something out of being around people who are, as you said fully, fully engaged. Yeah, I could tell you a story from my own life. You know when I was. 15, uh, a rabbi knocked on a door, a young rabbi uh, Zirkin in Fresno, who I think was 19 at that time. And I remember opening the door and my mind being blown. It was like, it was like I saw the first Jew I had ever seen in my life. Although obviously I had grown up Jewish. I've been around tons of Jews. It was, so, it was so striking. It's like, wow, he really believes this. He's really living this life. And it was, it changed our whole life, really. It changed my entire family's life. It's an amazing experience, which um, this podcast is about you, but not me. But the point is that seeing this person, this man who represented fully committing to that life was very powerful. Very, very, very powerful. So it's from my own life. Okay, a couple, couple more questions here and we'll wrap up. Um, what do you love most about your work? What do I love most about my work? That is an excellent question. I love the people. I love learning with people. I love teaching. I love learning, teaching people, but also learning from people. I love learning with the kids, with their bar mitzvah preparations or bat mitzvah preparations. And it's amazing, you know, how they, they're like sponges and they're, they're with all everything that's going on today with the technology and the TikTok and all of that, their hearts are open, their eyes are, are, are widened and they just love the ideas of Judaism, the ideas of Hasidah. So teaching, I would say, is probably my biggest joy. I love bringing interesting programming, concerts, interesting speakers. I love bringing that for the community and people just saying, wow, that was an amazing event and people feeling uplifted and inspired. That gives me a lot of joy when I'm able to do that. And I also have a side job, which I kind of dedicate my mornings to, which is uh, writing. So I, I've, I've written a couple of books, and I'm currently writing a book. 
about the Eshet Chayil, the women of valor in our history. This morning I was working on Rivka, the wife of Isaac, mm-hmm. and her story. So I love I love doing the writing. That's a that's a great joy from of mine as well. Okay, talk a little bit more about just about to ask you about this upcoming book. It's not just about the the song Eshet Chayil. It's about different women. Or talk a little bit more about it. Okay, I'm, first I'm going to skip all the different tunes of Eshet Chayil because we're winding down. Okay. Um, the book Eshet Chayil. So Eshet Chayil, Women of Valor, is a it's a poem, mm-hmm. traditionally read and uh, said on Friday night. And it comes from King Solomon's book of Proverbs, Mishli, the last chapter. So it's 22 verses. Easy to remember because it's the 22 letters of the al- alphabet. Every verse is another letter of the alphabet. Starts with a different letter of the alphabet. Aleph to Tav. And there's a midrash that says. So a tradition, probably, I mean, the, the first source of it, I think, is around 1300s from Yemen, Midrash and Gadol, that says that um, each of those verses is alluding to another great Jewish woman of our history. Mm. So Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, the famous ones, but there's also less famous ones like Yael and Basia, the daughter of Pharaoh, um, Zipporah, Moshe's wife. Uh, Hannah, the mother of Samuel, and so on and so forth. So what I ended up doing was basically writing mini biographies, like maybe five, four, three, four pages on each of these women, some of them more well-known than others, and some of them we have more information on than others. And uh, that's what I'm working on with the Aceous Chayel. Oh, very exciting. Any, uh, do you have an ETA? I know books take a long time, but any ETA for us? Well, according to uh, what I told my publisher, I was supposed to be done with with the manuscript by um, 20 days from now. So from when they get the manuscript till it gets into production, gets printed, probably takes about six months. Amazing. Okay, so uh, besides the book, what ongoing classes do you have that people can tune into and connect to you and learn from you? We have a weekly sermon on Shabbat. That is my that's my big. Uh, big big uh, teaching of the week that occurs every Shabbat at uh, approximately 11.45 at the Chabad in San Mateo, like Chabad Center. We have various classes with various schedules, so I would recommend getting in touch with me to find out about other classes that occur during the week, some of which are on Zoom. So even if you're not local, you can join with that. Uh, but our, our regular schedule now is, is the Shabbat. Perfect. Okay, so... I've thought of several other episodes we need to have to unpack some of these topics that we've lightly touched on, but I definitely want to thank you for your time. I know you're a very busy man with a lot going on, and I really appreciate what you have to say and what you have to offer. And I will end with one final question. You got it. Okay. What does the Jewish world need now most and why? What does the Jewish world need most now and why? I... I like big questions, but I don't feel qualified to answer them. <laughs> so uh, the first thing that comes to mind, I would say, is this idea of, of Jewish unity. We're especially in this time, the three weeks coming up with the nine days, Jewish unity. We're seeing in Israel terrible uh, fighting amongst brothers. I would say that's, that's certainly high up on the list is that Jews, we all know the saying, three Jew, two Jews, three opinions. We're very opinionated, and that's wonderful. But we need to respect other people who have other opinions, whether it's about Judaism, whether it's about politics, 
you need to be able to see view the person, the essence of the person, which is beyond their politics, it's beyond their religious observances or religious beliefs. It's beyond even, even things that they have done, mistakes that they've made in their life. You need to be able to see that that essence of each other. I love it. And I knew you were going to say something about Achdut when I asked you that question. <laughs> so I'm glad that I was I had an intuition about that. Well, uh, Rabbi Yossi, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate your wisdom and your insight. And I want to encourage everyone to go to um, ChabadNP.com and reach out to Rabbi Yossi. You can learn more. And uh, I want to end with a blessing. Now, a little nervous blessing you because, you know, it's a little intimidating. However, Hashem should bless you that your work should be continually uplifted and you should increase your reach and deepen your connection to people that are close to you and far from you and that you should your teachings should be easily accessible to people that want to return home and to come close to Yiddishkeit and I want to personally say that you have touched our lives in an amazing way and I'm so grateful to be close to you and I want to thank you for your time. Amen. Thank you so much, Saul. And as they say, whoever blesses is blessed. So right back at you to you and your beautiful family. And we should always meet together and sing together and bring joy to our people and to the entire world. Amen. Can hear our own. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Holy Sparks podcast. I'm your host, Saul K. Please subscribe to the channel. It helps us more than you know. Drop a review. Share this with friends and family, people you think would enjoy the content. And we'll see you on the next episode.